All right. Um, well, what's going on in <clears throat> the last part of that section that Jen just read, particularly starting with verse 17, is uh, there's a contrast being set up here between the people of God and those who reject the gospel, those who have believed the gospel and those who reject the gospel. We could say the righteous and the wicked, uh, two categories that Scripture talks about over and over again. And uh, want to just see the whole passage tonight in light of those two realities. I first want to look at who the righteous are and the fate of the righteous, what the righteous will experience in this life and in the future, and the same for the wicked. So, as we uh, look at verse 17, you see that he gives a label, gives a term to the righteous or to believers. And what's the, the term, the phrase that's used? Household of God. The household of God. An interesting phrase, and we'll look at that in a little bit. So as we consider who these people are, of course, that's Peter's audience. Uh, let's go back to chapter 1 and see if we can pick up on what they believe. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's look at verses 3 to 9. What has made these people the household of God? That's the question we're looking to answer. What has made them this way? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Someone want to read that section? Yeah. All right, as we look at that passage, how could we start to answer this question? What was their gospel? And I put slash is because it's not like the household of God doesn't exist anymore or that it exists with the new gospel. Uh, what, if you just look at that section though, Peter's audience, what was the good news that they were relying on? What are some clues that we can pick up from the text there? Okay, so Jesus is a central figure. We see that when we see mention of the resurrection there. Okay, Jesus and his resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 3. What else? Good. There's a new birth involved. Okay. Good, a living hope. How about, uh, there's a word in both verse 5 and verse 9 that's pretty important. Is that word in both 5 and 9? No, okay. Because <laughs> that's, that's a good word, an important word. Salvation, good. But what, what other word? <laughs> good, faith, there we go. Faith, you think faith's important when we figure out what their gospel is. Yeah, sure. Uh, drop down to verse 17, same chapter, chapter 1. Verse 17, someone want to read 17 to 25? Okay. Okay, so as we're looking through that section, what are some other elements we can pull out about their gospel, what they've believed, what's true about the good news they're relying on. You have to be a little louder. 
that was just a little louder. Okay. <laughs> the blood of Christ. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's powerful, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and Christians were chosen before the foundation of the world. One doesn't go without the other, does it? Yeah, that's cool. What else is in there? So we've got the blood of Christ, which, of course, is his substitutionary death. What about the latter section, verses 22 to... 20, well, 22 and 23. Okay, yeah, that's an important theme for tonight because, um, I'm going to put obedience, I started spelling it wrong, because it says tonight of the wicked that they disobey the Word. Obedience to the Word, okay? Good, that's good, out of those two sections. So if we were looking at what makes them the household of God, how do they, how did they get that definition? Well, they believe in the capital M man, Jesus Christ. They're relying on His resu- resurrection. They've been born again to a living hope by faith through a substitutionary death and obedience to the Word. Look at that. You got the gospel in 1 Peter chapter 1. Pretty clear, don't you? You got all the elements right there. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And so that's when we chapter 4 and we see that they are referred to as the household of God. We recognize that they are the household of God because of the gospel. And we're going to see now in our section, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time tonight, in verse 17, it says, with this household of God, it is time for judgment to begin with them. Now, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because you think gospel, no judgment. That could be our first instinct, right? You think, oh, I believe the gospel. I'm free from judgment. And here Peter says, Since you believe the gospel, judgment starts with you. (laughs) Now, that kind of reverses some of our thinking, all right? Um, Being saved through difficulty is what we see in verse 18. Uh, So, if we are to ask the question, how are they being saved? And your translation might say that uh, they're scarcely saved. NASB says they're saved with difficulty. That's like the first thing we could say is, well, they're saved with difficulty. And now we have to define what that means. And that's, again, where we're going to spend most of our time. Uh, Peter refers to this experience that they're going through as the judgment of God. And you have to think from their perspective as Christians who are being persecuted, who are living in a culture that hates them, a culture that is displacing them and making their lives awful. It certainly had to feel like judgment that they were going through. I'm sure they perceived it as judgment. And what we learned last week, if you run your eyes back over verses 12 to 16, is that this is a testing. Right there in verse 12, he tells them, don't be surprised when this fiery ordeal comes upon you, when it's among you, because it is for your testing. Now, right from the beginning, we want to make a distinction, and we talked about this last week, but it's important to keep it in front of us. We want to make a distinction between testing and condemnation, okay? Or judgment that leads to your testing versus judgment that leads to your condemnation. 
Peter does not have in view here for the believer that that believer will be condemned. That's not in view, okay? In fact, we're going to see that a main part of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous are going to be saved and the wicked aren't. The wicked are condemned, the righteous aren't condemned, okay? So this is having to do with our testing. And God is testing them or judging them by what means? As you think about the context of 1 Peter that we've talked about over and over again, what these believers are going through, what's the means by which God is testing them? Who's persecuting them? Yeah. Who are general in a spiritual sense? There you go. God is using unbelievers to judge and test believers. Now, there's an idea that just, again, sounds like that sounds off, but you really got to embrace that. <laughs> you got to hold on to that because that's what's going on here. Uh, you know, again, going back to where we were last week in verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Well, they're going through persecution. That's the theme of Peter's letter. And it comes upon you for your testing. And tonight, verse 17, judgment begins with the household of God. We know that God's in control of this, and we'll see that in some other places in Scripture tonight. Uh, we know that God did this with Israel, of course, right? He used the surrounding nations. He used Israel's enemies to beat up on them and whip them into shape <laughs> to get their attention. And we know Israel was just a, a stubborn child, weren't they? But God is using the persecution that comes from unbelievers to test believers. And you just got to get real comfortable with that thought because that's what's going on. And we talked last week about how the, the three R.E.s, remember? There was revealing, refining, and Jim's not in here to say his word, reinforcing. <laughs> three words. As we think about what testing does to the believer, it's revealing. It's revealing your heart. It's refining. It's burning away certain things that don't need to be there. And it's reinforcing. It's strengthening you in your faith. And so that's what God is doing through the means of persecution from unbelievers. Uh, God is big and powerful, isn't He, that He would even use unbelievers to reveal, refine, and reinforce His people. And this, of course, is a painful discipline for the people of God. It's a painful discipline to undergo judgment and testing, particularly through persecution. This isn't uh, like ripping off a Band-Aid, owie. This is like affects your whole life, day in, day out, that they're going through. And they're being just totally exposed in so many ways. But again, we've got to remember Peter's encouragement. Look at verse 16, the verse right before where we started tonight. Those Christians are to not be ashamed. If you're suffering as a Christian, if you're being disciplined, if you're being tested by God, if you're, being, if you're going through this judgment that he talks about in verse 17, do not be ashamed, but glorify God in this name. If you're going through that suffering, in such a difficulty. It's an expected difficulty. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. And then do not be ashamed, but rejoice. Because this is a more intimate alignment with Jesus. And that's been one of Peter's big themes too. And we'll go back to chapter 2 in a little bit where he talks about Jesus' suffering, where Jesus uh, did not revile in return. He did not open his mouth, but he kept trusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Okay, thoughts on that first aspect of 
being saved through difficulty. Because I, I think we could accurately say, right, that this is um, verse 18, we agree with Peter, the righteous are saved with difficulty. They're going through this fiery ordeal. That's difficult, this testing. But thoughts or questions on that? Yeah, that's verse 12. Yep. Yep, fiery. Fiery ordeal. Melissa. Yep. So there's <clears throat> Greek, certain Greek words have a much wider semantic range than English words do. So that word at certain times in the New Testament, I can't remember, I did look it up. It was yesterday, though. It wasn't today. Uh, so it's not fresh in my mind, but that word is used a couple dozen times, I think, or a decent amount in the New Testament, and sometimes it is used in the sense of scarcely, and at other times it is with difficulty. Um, but, I mean, when you think about the word scarcely, uh, you know, scarce is a word that's uh, the opposite of abundance, right? And so it does have with it the idea of, yeah, going through with not much, right? Um, yeah, struggling. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. Um, well, let's talk about the, uh, how, the term household of God. We talked about why they're labeled that way. But let's go back to chapter 2, starting at verse 4. This is a theme that Peter introduced, this household as, uh, aspect. Peter introduced in chapter 2. And would someone read verses 4 and 5 for us? 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. All right, so you see the theme of being a household there? Um, we went through that quite a while ago now. It's been probably three months since we've covered that passage. But the idea that we are living stones and we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so when he says in our passage tonight that we are the household of God, it's not a brand new theme that he's bringing in out of left field. But this is the continuation of the idea that he brought up a couple chapters ago. We, as the people of God, are the temple of God. Uh, we know from our study in 1 Corinthians that individually we are temples. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, you are temples of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body. But we also know uh, from other passages like 1 Corinthians 3 that collectively we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that He dwells in us when we're together. And uh, that is used by Peter to create this temple imagery, that we are the temple, the household of God. We come to Him as living stones. And the way that Peter is presenting this in verse 18, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household, or you could say even temple of God, uh, certain teachers believe that this passage is connected to Malachi 3, and there are some significant parallels, so I want us to turn there and look at this because Peter may be drawing on a theme from Malachi, uh, though it's not exclusive to Malachi, but it's worth looking at. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, 
second to last chapter of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, and just starting at the beginning of the chapter. As we read through this, I want you to think about the similarities that exist between this passage and what we're reading in 1 Peter 4. Someone want to read Malachi 3, 1 to 6? 1 through 6? Uh, it does, uh, but the the fire imagery is the same there in verse two. He's coming to the refiner's fire, or verse three as a smelter. Okay, and then if you drop down to um, let's see, we'll draw near to you for judgment. Okay, so the ideas of judgment and fire, God Himself performing the actions, God doing similar themes between this and... and um, I don't think there's a... Interesting. If you look back at verse 1, uh, Malachi 3, verse 1, who is this messenger? When it says, Behold, Yahweh speaking to Israel, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Yeah, John the Baptist. Jesus actually quotes in Matthew 11 in reference to John the Baptist. And then we'll suddenly come to his temple. So there's our temple imagery too, household of God in 1 Peter 4 and then temple here. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Who's the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight? Yeah. Yeah, the Messiah, Jesus. And so, um, what we have here is pretty interesting because you've got John the Baptist at the start of the passage, and he's already come and gone, obviously. He's fulfilled this aspect of clearing the way for the Lord. But then you have this Messiah coming, and he's coming like a refiner's fire and launderer's soap for who? Who's Who's he coming for? Sons of Levi, yeah, he's going to refine them, he's going to purify them, and it's going to spread from there. Verse 4, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will then be pleasing to the Lord. And he goes on and talks about all of the sons of Jacob in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And so there's, um, this is one of those mountaintop prophecy situations. We've talked about that before, where you've got a couple of prophecies next to each other, and there's a gap in between, okay? And you're you're living in the gap right now, uh, and we're looking forward to the day when God is going to draw near for judgment to Israel. But in our passage tonight, Peter's saying that it is now time for judgment to begin with the household of God in reference to the church. Now's the time for that. It's not yet time for him to draw near for judgment with the sons of Levi, but with his priests in the church, he is drawing near for judgment. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. And again, it's not a perfect correlation. Uh, when you think about Israel's state that is being talked about in Malachi 3, how they're oppressing and abusing the orphan and the widow and other disadvantaged peoples, 
Well, that's not what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 4. The church was, were the ones being oppressed. They weren't doing the oppressing. So it's not a perfect correlation, but we see similar themes. And we actually see this theme in Israel quite a bit, and it's something that God continues to do. Uh, we see it in Ezekiel 9, you see it in Zechariah 13 and other places, that God tests His own people first. God tests His, his people first. And from there, His judgment and His testing goes out. But for His people, those who are truly His, who are converted through faith, well, they remain. They get to experience the revealing, refining, reinforcing that we talked about last week. But for those who don't know the Lord, well, they, uh, of course, don't last. They can't stand before the Lord. They have no faith, and they're totally consumed. And, of course, this... uh, this goes on in every age to varying degrees, and it will ultimately crescendo in the future great tribulation when it's ultimate uh, God pouring out His wrath on the earth. So, thoughts on that aspect of uh, God testing His people first, even though they are His household and His spiritual temple. Tracking right along with all these really encouraging and edifying themes here. Yeah, but uh, Satan isn't a free agent, is he? He's under the will of God. And the unbelievers who persecute, same thing. God uses them, right? Melissa? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the testing isn't just for the people who are directly experiencing something, but for all of us who are indirectly involved. Yeah, absolutely. Melissa, were you have a thought or question? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, going back to the you know, tribulation idea, you look in Revelation and those who don't take the mark and who are martyred, um, God's in control of all that. That's why it's, that's how it's written all down ahead of time, right? <laughs> He's absolutely, totally in control of what's going to happen. It's going to come to pass exactly as He said. And, you know, those who endure to the end will be saved is what Jesus says. And so... Um, that's God uses these things in our lives to test us and to strengthen us in our faith. Um, we also see in our section tonight, uh, at the last verse, verse 19, that one of the aspects of our enduring, one of the aspects of our, uh, how we're to respond when being tested is by doing what with our souls? Entrusting. Yeah. Anybody else have a different word than entrusting? Just curious. Nope. Okay. Must be, must be the perfect word then. Uh, as we entrust our souls, we are being saved with difficulty as we entrust our souls. Um, <clears throat> your soul is... Uh, 
who you really are before God, who you are as God sees you. That's, that's your soul. You know, it's, it's the real person. It's your life. And to entrust something means to what? And why? Why? What would motivate you to give something to that particular person? That, so that you're not forking it over or it's not being pried out of your hands, but you're willfully entrusting because that person is trustworthy, right? Yeah. And entrusting, it starts from that view of faith and trust. To have a genuine trust, a genuine faith that results in your life being handed over to that person. And so here, the Christian is being told, you who suffer according to the will of God, well, entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The way that we entrust our souls and give our lives over is by doing what is right. Uh, Again, look at last week's section, verse 15, up above a couple verses. Peter reminded them in verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. That's the opposite of entrusting your soul to God, <laughs> rebelling, sinning. Entrusting your soul to God is living for Him, doing what is right, as it says in verse 19. That is how we entrust ourselves. And that's what Jesus did. Go back to the end of chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, 21. Just a page or two over, 1 Peter 2, 21. When he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled... He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? There's our word again. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So sincerely pursuing God with your life, even amid difficulty, trial, tribulation, persecution, suffering, famine, sword, all of those things we see listed throughout the New Testament of those things that are to come upon the Christian, entrusting your soul amid the fiery ordeal, that's what you're called to do, entrusting yourself to your faithful Creator, to He who judges rightly. And I like that Peter used the phrase faithful Creator here. Creator, of course, invokes the idea that He's the one who made you and He's the one who knows you intimately. No one knows you better than God. No one knows your circumstances better than God. No one has seen your whole life before you except for your Creator, God. He's your Creator, capital C, Creator. But not just that, He's your faithful Creator. He will follow through on His promises. He promises deliverance for the believer. And He's going to follow through on that because He's faithful. He's our faithful Creator then we are to entrust our souls to Him. Thoughts on that? Thought. Yeah, yeah, right. Yep, it's not doubting, right? James talks about this that we, we trust 
God without doubting. We're not double-minded when we do it. But we give ourselves over in true faith. Yep. Right, well, that's, and that's the nature of testing. Because what, what, what it does is testing reveals whether someone truly has or not. You know, we talked about this last week with the, um, the parable of the sower. And when the scorching sun of persecution came out and shined down on that plant with little root, shallow root, it withered up. And that persecution came because of the Word, Jesus said. And so, yeah, you say uh, that... You believe in Christ? Uh, maybe you're as bold as Peter and say, oh, I'll die for you. Or you're as bold as James and John saying, yeah, the cup that you drink, I'll drink. Yeah, the baptized with which you're baptized, I'm, I can be baptized with that. And then when it comes, it exposes, doesn't it? It reveals. But for those who are truly gods that God has saved, it'll reveal faith. And it'll refine the believer and strengthen the believer. And God sees us through to the end in that there's no future condemnation. Um, If we were to ask the question, what's their future? These members of the household of God who are being tested, what's their future? Well, we can say, echoing Romans 8.1, no, there you go. All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good job. Yeah, therefore now no condemnation. Uh, you look at, again, that middle verse for tonight's passage, verse 18. It says, and it, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. So latch on to that word. Don't gloss over that word. That word means you're not condemned. That means you're redeemed, Okay. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, and then there's an applied contrast here, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So the righteous is saved, and at a very basic level, you could answer the rhetorical question here, well, what will become of the godless man? Well, he won't be saved, right? Um, But for the righteous, for the believer, for the one who's been made righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he suffers no condemnation. He is totally saved. And so again, we go back to that thought. We don't see the judgment of God that begins with the household of God. We don't see that as condemnation. We're saved. Now we see it as difficulty, right? We don't say it's a cakewalk. It's been a long time since I've done a cakewalk, by the way. Every fall, now I'm being taken back because it was the fall party that my school, my little country school would have the same classroom every year would have a cakewalk. Has anyone ever been to a cakewalk in like the last, well, like five, ten years? Have we stopped as a society? <laughs> you walk and you get cake. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like uh, musical chairs or something, right? Yeah. Okay. There you go, right. <laughs> so, all that to say, that's not what... God's judgment is, <laughs> okay? Uh, God's judgment is not that, um, but it's also not condemnation, okay? It's not a cakewalk, 
but it's testing, it's discipline from God, and it strengthens believers. And, we, and this is so hard for us to understand in our flesh, and we, we probably can't really wrap our minds around it now. But we see, as, as Christians, we see this testing, this fiery ordeal, as a blessing from God. And again, it, it's so hard for us to understand now, but when Christians go through persecution, you know, last week we turned back to Acts 5 and we saw Peter and John being persecuted, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name. Where does that come from? And you look at that and you think, I wouldn't do that. And you know what? I think you would as a believer. I think God would do that through you in that moment. We're sitting in padded chairs in a very comfortable room. You know, we're, you know, we're uh, uncomfortable because it's two degrees off from what we would want in the room, you know. And so we think, how could we ever undergo persecution? Because you have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, it says. And because of that reality, when you go through something, He just strengthens you. He empowers you. He leads you, guides you. I mean, you're able to rejoice and to count it as a, as a blessing. Because you read the words on the page and you think, how could anybody do that? Well, you can't in your flesh, but you can by the power of God, right? Um, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on us. And the judge himself comforts us. Isn't that something to think about? This is the judgment of God that you go through, but the judge comforts you while you're going through it. You have the comforter with you, the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit, God Himself. So how could you ever get through this testing? It's because the teacher is with you. <laughs> how could you get through the judgment? Because the judge is with you. He's both your judge and your Savior. And you, f- you experience that. You feel that as you walk through this life. But for the wicked, He's just their judge not their Savior. He's just the, the teacher who's testing them. He's not actually with them, walking through the testing. And so, the believer has a great advantage, though it's difficult, the believer has great advantage in that he has God through the testing and can see it as testing. But for the wicked, let's look uh, at the end of verse 17. Um, how are the wicked defined? Because, of course, the, the word wicked isn't in here, but at the end of verse 18, how are they defined? They're defined as those who don't obey what? There you go. They don't obey the gospel. This isn't the first time that Peter has used that language. Look again at the start of chapter 2, verse 8. He says of the unbelievers, they consider Jesus Christ to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And why do they stumble, verse 8? They stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. Okay, serious, a serious passage, for sure. They do not obey the gospel of God. So the, the household of God is defined by latching on to these things, as we've seen in the letter, and those who are outside the household of God, well, they're out there because they don't obey the gospel. They refuse 
to do what? Well, they refuse to, verse 19, entrust their souls, right? That's what the believer's called to do, verse 19, entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right, and the unbelievers just simply refuse. They don't entrust their souls to God. They don't obey the gospel of God. They don't recognize their creator or submit to their creator. And so, um, he asks these questions, what's going to be their outcome? Verse 17, and in verse 18, what will become of them? What will become of the godless man and the sinner? And he doesn't provide an answer. They're rhetorical questions. But how do you answer that biblically? What becomes of those who don't obey the gospel of God? Okay, yeah. <clears throat> so we can say, one, they will meet God as judge, right? Uh, turn back chapter 1, verse 17, I believe. Uh, this has been a paradigm that Peter's been looking through, often through the book. Chapter 1, verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, there again, Peter's talking about the judgment of believers in the context of believers. Uh, but we see there that God is both father and judge for the believer. Yet with the unbeliever, not father, just judge. I <clears throat> heard a paraphrase of something that Warren Wiersbe has taught this week. It's pretty good. Um, it's a story of there's a, a young man who was, I, I can't remember, I might be just throwing in my own spin on this, but he was in a pond and he was drowning and a man came by and, and rescued him out of the pond, saved his life. And uh, he and the man talked and then they went their separate ways and he didn't see the man again. And um, later on in life, the young man got into some legal trouble and was brought to court and there was that man who had rescued him from the pond and he was sitting there as judge. And the young man appeals to, hey, remember that time you saved me. And the judge says something in response of, I was your savior now, savior, now I'm your judge. And that's the experience for the unbeliever. In this life, Christ is presented to them as Savior. They don't obey the gospel and they meet God as judge because it's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. And you can't appeal back. You can't change after you, after you die. Uh, the decisions you make in this life, you just have one life to call out to God and to be saved. And so they meet God as judge of the soul, not as savior of the soul. That's how they meet God. They don't meet God and are welcomed by His grace. They meet God and they're welcomed totally, absolutely by the justice they deserve. And, of course, as you guys had said, <clears throat> they meet God as judge and that results in eternal say separation in hell. They receive the due penalty of their error, the phrase that comes from Romans 1. The due penalty of their sin. They will receive justice from the perfect judge. And so that is uh, quite a bit different, obviously, than our future. Our future is no condemnation, and their future is absolutely condemnation. 
So now I, I want you to think about this situation for the Christians that Peter's writing to. They've got this reality of their lives. They've got the gospel. They recognize there's a fiery ordeal they're going through, but they are to entrust their souls to God through it. There's no condemnation for them. They will be saved. Okay, all of that's in our passage tonight. They also understand that the wicked, the ones whom God is using to bring about this judgment, the ones whom God is using to create this fiery ordeal that they're walking through for their testing, that that's their reality. They reject the gospel. They will meet God as judge. They will be judged righteously and will be condemned. How does that affect their psyche? As they get this from Peter, how does that affect the way they, they consider their circumstances and they consider their situation, those who are persecuting them? How would that affect you? No, how, how would it affect uh, you as a believer receiving this? Receiving this letter, receiving this instruction, re- receiving these truths? How do you start thinking about your circumstances now? No, there aren't, there aren't too many wrong answers in this section, so <laughs> go for it. <clears throat> yeah, so we'll elaborate on that. Choice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, does that, what does that do for you as a believer? undergoing persecution. They're making the choice to persecute you. How does that affect your, your soul as you go through that? In what way? Yeah, uh, that's a big theme in Peter is looking ahead to when God makes things right. And... Uh, we have to live that way all the time, though it's definitely easier through certain seasons to you know, slip away from that thinking. But we should be thinking that way as Christians with an eternal perspective, right? Melissa, then Andy. Yeah, as, as they're beating you to have compassion on them. That's supernatural strength, isn't it? Andy. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew. Well, and that's, there's a paradox or an irony to all of this in that you're a Christian. Because you're a Christian, you're getting persecuted. The Bible says, keep being a Christian. That's the thing that got me beat up last week, you know. It's against our natural instinct to want to keep doing the thing that's causing the beatings. It's against our flesh to want to keep doing the thing that's resulting in more hurt and pain and suffering and harm and, and all those things. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, we, we are meeting freely. We're not hiding right now. Absolutely. Because we're not promised that. I mean, that, again, that's, it's a rare time in human history that we're doing this. So, um, I like this quote from um, Karen Jobes. She said, It is easiest to do good when things are going well when we are prospering and healthy. But when we suffer as the consequence of doing good, i.e. living for Christ with all that that implies, how unreasonable it seems to continue to do the very things that are causing pain. Continue to live as a Christian. Continue to observe appropriate social relationships. Continue to minister to one another in the Christian community. Don't let persecution and suffering deflect you from your calling in Christ because they are a part of this calling. <laughs> Don't let persecution and suffering deflect you from your calling in Christ, because they are a part of this calling. Yeah. We don't often work that into our gospel presentations. <laughs> yeah, Believe, and, and you will uh, undergo suffering and persecution. Yeah, well, and, and in certain cultures where that's reality... That's a conversation that they have. I do remember um, there was a, a young man several years ago out here who had a business in Nephi and was, seemed like, considering becoming a believer and uh, talking to him about, are you willing to lose your business? Not saying it'll happen, but at the same time, Nephi is not exactly the most Christian place in the world, <laughs> um, and if you, if it's known that you know you become a Christian, become a believer, you might lose some clientele. Uh, so, you know, again, it's like a far off chance, extremely small persecution in a lot of ways, but at the same time, and a, re a reality. And uh, as cultures heat up against. God and start showing more and more their true colors of being anti-Christ, uh, it becomes more of a reality when someone's talking about believing in Jesus that we, we say, you know, like Jesus talked about in Matthew 10, He came to bring a sword. He's going to set family members against each other. Uh, it's going to be really, really difficult in a lot of ways. Um, and of course, that does happen to, uh, for a lot of people. Uh, but it could be happening more and more and more. We'll see. Other thoughts or questions as we land the Boeing 737 gently? <laughs> yeah, you're talking about Israel. Yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah, well... Yeah, that's right. And you can't get much more wicked than that. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, it's the most religious people of the day. Yep, who didn't know how to read the Scriptures, 
They, they knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, but they had all the outward appearances, didn't they? Wow. What else? Got about a few minutes here. Yeah, that's right. Those who are persecuted for my name, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything else? Dustin? He's got his hand up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was just reading today. It was Mark thirteen thirteen. Jesus' promise, you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. What a promise, yep, a part of our calling. So, Okay, well, how about I pray and we'll finish up about five minutes early, huh? Let's pray. God, we again thank you for your word and for the pure milk that it is, the sustenance it is for us as Christians, your people your household. Lord, we ask that by this word we would be empowered, be strengthened in the way that we think, that we would go about uh, our lives as living sacrifices, really truly viewing our lives that way, not as sacrifices that may or may not happen, but that each and every day we would see the reality of the need to lay our lives down for your namesake because you've called us to this. You've saved us, you've placed us in your family that we might magnify your name. You've given us the promise of salvation. You've released us from the guilt of condemnation. Please give us a, just a, a true, powerful freedom in Christ to live as living sacrifices no matter what may come. Have us to see your sovereign hand in all things that we wouldn't see anything as happenstance or luck or fortune, but that we would see it all as your doing, as you test us and refine us, and give us a, a great love for one another too, that we would live to bless your name, to make much of you and all that we're doing. Lord, we love you and we thank you and ask that you give us safety as we return home tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.